Welcome to Spotlights, a series of online events and publications focusing on a particular group of victim survivors who are often hidden from services. As part of Safe Life Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, this week my colleague Deirdre met with Jasvinda Sangira, CBE, founder and CEO of Karma Nirvana. In this interview, Jasvinda speaks of her inspiration for the founding of Karma Nirvana 25 years ago, how the sector has changed and evolved over that time, and what important work we must continue to do to support victims and survivors. We hope that you find this interview as powerful and enlightening as we have. Just to kind of start off, um, Karma Nirvana is a very well-known and respected organisation, but for anybody who isn't sure about kind of what you do on a day-to-day level, can you tell me a bit about what you do? Yeah, so Karma Nirvana is a national charity. We support both men and women who are affected by honour abuse and forced marriages. Mm -hmm. In terms of the organisation, we're a campaigning organisation, so we've been key in campaigning for specific legislation, but also we provide the only national helpline that supports both men and women, which preheads mm-hmm. here at the organisation, and, and um, it remains a lifeline for many people. And as an organisation, we're constantly raising awareness amongst professional organisations nationally, mm-hmm. and ensuring that the issue of honour abuse and forced marriage is dealt with as a safeguarding issue, and Part of that means challenging the attitudes that people believe that this is somehow part of one's cultural, religion or tradition. It clearly isn't. And mm-hmm. if we think like that, then we're not safeguarding people affected by this abuse. Great, thank you. And I know that you founded the organisation over 25 years ago mm-hmm. in your front room. Mm-hmm. What led you to do that? Um, Carmen Nirvana was founded through my personal experiences of being a potential victim of a forced marriage. I wasn't actually forced into the marriage. I was born in Britain uh, alongside my sisters and I had one brother and I watched the majority of my sisters being taken out of British schools to marry men they'd only ever met in photographs. And nobody questioned their absences and they'd be forced into this marriage. And I use the word forced because, you know, they were children when it happened to them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the ability to consent. And also our upbringing meant we were incredibly vulnerable and conditioned to believe that as women we were meant to behave in a certain way and our choices were not our own, even the right to choose who you wanted to marry. So I was 14 when my mother presented me with a photograph of the man I was to learn I was promised to from the age of eight. And I was the one that said, no, I'm not marrying a stranger. I was born here, I want to go to school. And my mother was very clear that saying no was not an option. So in the end, I was taken out of education at the age of 15 and a half and held a prisoner in my own home until I agreed to the marriage, which I did, purely to plan my escape. I left home at the age of 16. And at 16 years old, my family gave me the choice. I can come back home and have my family as long as I agreed to conform to the expected level of behaviour of a woman and also marry who they said, or I would have to live a life disowned by my family, which means not having any of your family again and as far as they were concerned my mother said you're dead in our eyes and it is a choice and it was a choice as a 16 year old you're faced with that choice many young people are faced with that choice today and I chose the latter and subsequently I've been disowned for 37 years as have my three children and grandchildren now so 
I lived a life in hiding and then I became a campaigner because my sister Rubina, sadly, who was forced to marry at the age of 15, has suffered a horrific marriage, domestic abuse. And the people who were meant to protect her that she turned to, be it family or community members, sent her back because it would have been too shameful and dishonourable for her to leave her husband. So again, you know, here's a woman who experiences honour abuse being told the concept of honour is more important in your decision-making than protecting your life and the life of her son. She had a very young boy as well. Sadly, my sister, in the end, committed suicide. She set herself on fire and she died in her early 20s. And it was that experience of my own that led me to want to set up a charity that gave voice to these experiences back in 93. Wow. And what did setting up the charity look like? How did it begin? In 1993, it was, for me, um, first time ever I started speaking about my experience from Rubina's. Um, I, it was in the face of no awareness at all. So nobody was talking about this or thinking about this as happening in Britain at all. Yeah. So, you know, I came across people who looked at me as if I had two heads and people who clearly were saying, no, it might be happening in some foreign land, but not in, Brit not in Britain. You know, we're a civilised you know, democracy, you know, this cannot be happening in Britain. So the evidence was me, <laughs> you know, this happened to me. I was born here, I'm a British citizen and my sister. So it was really difficult because there seemed to be m many obstacles, a lot of denial and no support whatsoever from the community where this is happening. Yeah. So for the first, say, four years, it was very much about me knocking on any door and then walking through it if they listened, and if the door closed, finding another door, and it was police, the women's centre. I used to do keep fit classes to try and get women to come and hear what I had to say after the classes. So any opportunity where I could speak, over and above raising my kids and being at uni. <laughs> Just a few things. <laughs> yeah. So it was about probably even giving them the language around what was happening to you. Yeah. Did they even have awareness of what you were experiencing? Not at all. There was absolutely no awareness whatsoever in 93, 96, um, 97 <laughs> was the time when I first managed to secure some funding from the National Lottery. Then it gave us some resources to do some actual work. Yeah. Um, and then the engagement was very different with regards to the policing sector, the voluntary sector. Yeah. But it's taken many years to get people to acknowledge this is an issue for Britain. And yeah. those early days was very much for me, not just about getting local people to get this in the statutory sector, but also to get government to listen to it. And that was mm -hmm. when we had the very first Choice by, Choice by Right report in 1999 mm -hmm. that led to the forced marriage unit in 2005. And do you think, I was going to ask the question of what do you think the tipping point was with regards to recognition and change was it that was it something else it, for me it was I remember setting up the helpline in 1993 in my front room and in the first four years never having one call to the helpline and then when I managed to galvanize some volunteers they would say well, what's the point of having a helpline nobody's calling it and I would say they will call the more we go out there and talk about this they will call and then slowly you had one or two calls to the helpline a week if that but to me that is just me saying, they're out there, they don't know we're here. So as the helpline started to evolve to a trickle of calls, you know, maybe 10 in a month, mm -hmm. you know, the evidence was damning in terms of there are more people like me. And so I would just say, imagine how many more there are. And then that galvanised the momentum in terms of me using my story, Rubina's story, other stories, albeit I didn't name the individuals. Yeah. You can use their stories anonymously. It's still powerful. Mm -hmm. And that led to the 
the Choice by Right report that government did looking at Britain as a whole, is this an issue for UK citizens? Yeah. And that report clearly highlighted yes, not only is it an issue, but we've got a problem here in Britain. You saw um, girls being kidnapped, raped, um, bounty hunters tracking them down. You know, everything that I'd experienced in terms of my personal experience, professionals were beginning to talk about it and survivors were sharing their stories. For me, I think that was the tipping point mm-hmm. because then you had government attention yeah, and also the momentum of more voices, just like mine, who started to share their stories. That's great. And... and- looking to now Mm. how much do you think we've come did we come quite far is there still a lot to do what's good what still needs to change really from 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 my perspective and we're in our 25th year as a charity yeah um this is a journey and um it's albeit in 93 to 97 for me personally it was a one on my own I have to say yeah and that, that's not to get anybody who was supporting me at that time because their support has been immense in terms of my own sanity yeah. if it were but the point is where I think we've seen significant changes there are more people who are taking this on board like-minded people who are beginning to talk about this save lives is one example you know so police forces now who are making this part of their policy and their practice And importantly, the campaign to create a criminal offence in 2014 has made a significant change in terms of a shift in attitudes out there. So Mm -hmm. people are not only beginning to accept this is happening from a point of, no, it isn't. Um, We've shifted to acceptance. Yep. We've shifted to... Um, seen a, a mass increase in reporting, yep. so hundreds to our helpline, to government, to police forces, to other organisations, and we've shifted to a place where, from my perspective, um, there are more survivors who are now sharing their stories, and their visibility is so important, and we encourage that all the time at Common of Honour. Where we're not seeing a shift... I have to say, is in the communities where this is happening. There Mm -hmm. is a lack of leadership there, and also in education. And I'm talking about um, schools Mm -hmm. across the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not embedded within a child protection framework. That is going to impact on accountability and impact on children and prevention. So the helpline deals with crisis. Yes. You know, we want to get in there... So ideally, we don't want to see calls to the helpline. Yeah. But we're dealing with the tip of the iceberg on the helpline. We want to prevent this. So where we're not seeing engagement, and this is a criticism of government, I have to say. Yeah. We're not seeing the leadership um, by the Department for Education. We're not seeing this as part of Nofsted inspection. We're not seeing education sit at the table. And yet that is where you're going to prevent this. We're now going to have... um sex and relationships education in school as a mandatory thing Mm -hmm. where do you think education awareness about this issue comes in do you think it comes in under that I think anything to do with healthy relationships is an opportunity to talk about this issue yeah so healthy relationships is about consent yep the right to have a partner and the right to choose who you want to marry is yep. about consent. And the whole issue about forced marriage is it's about consent. Mm. So I would urge schools to use any opportunity to yep. put this on the framework. I mean, I was at a school this morning, you know, and the head teacher is very clear. He said, you know, I signed up to teach and to keep kids safe. In fact, he's Johnny Mitchell, who did Educate in Yorkshire, head teacher here based in Leeds, whose school is going to be used as a beacon to develop this kind of work. But, but you know, 
it's the common sense leadership of a head teacher who is saying, do you know what? This is a child protection issue. It's a no-brainer. You know, we have to be very clear that it's not part of anybody's culture to abuse anybody. And if we're going to give the kid the right to an education, we've got to keep them safe in school and outside of school. What we know about forced marriages is that it prevents our young people from progressing into further education because their lives are mapped out for them. Mm -hmm. So we've got to get them in school. So, yeah, you know, talking about um, sex in schools, healthy relationships, anything to do with rights... This is an opportunity to talk about on the basis of abuse and forced marriage in terms of the right to choose who you want to marry. Definitely. And as there's been an increase in awareness around forced marriage mm. and honour-based violence, mm. it seems almost inevitable that there will be misconceptions mm. alongside that and sure. misuse of those definitions. Mm. Um, have you seen that happen? Mm. Does the good of using those definitions outweigh the bad? I know there's kind of debate around it at the moment. You see, I always say to people... It is not rocket science. Yeah. You know, try to make your language as simple as possible. This is a complex issue. But at the starting point, mm -hmm. it is about consent. My, my you know, my, my three-year-old grandson knows when I'm asking him to do something or if I'm forcing him to do something, he yeah. will feel uncomfortable. He's yeah. three. Yeah. Okay? So an arranged marriage is where two individuals or one is saying, actually, yeah, you know what, I want this. Yeah, let's yeah. have a conversation about this. They have to be 16 or above, though. And if it's a forced marriage, you're being forced. There's some duress. Mm. You're feeling uncomfortable. You're questioning it. Yeah. You know, and that duress is the force. Mm. So an arranged marriage is where there is the consent of both parties. Mm. A forced marriage is where there is not the consent of one or both parties. And that's all people need to get, really, and yeah. not overcomplicate it. Yeah. You know, when people start talking about, but isn't it part of your tradition? Well, it's not part of my culture to be abused, or anybody's culture to no. be abused. I always say cultural acceptance does not mean accepting and acceptable. The sad thing is, is whilst we overcomplicate it, mm -hmm. what is happening is we're not giving the professionals the confidence to deal with it. Because then they are going to start rethinking this differently, not as child and public protection, and they're going to start thinking, oh, well, is it cultural? Do I have to be careful? I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want mm -hmm. to be called a racist. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to be a bit careful here. So that means, in terms of child protection, my protection is going to be watered down. Not my white counterparts, but mine will be watered down. And that cannot be right. No. I recently did an interview with um, Dr. Gangoli, who mm. um, works for the University of Bristol, yeah. and she did a report for the HMIC about police's responses mm. to um, survivors of forced marriage and honour-based violence. Yeah. And what she said is, what they said, was that the initial response was great, but what the police didn't understand is or do well is that kind of follow-up support. Mm. And they didn't know or understand what they needed to do, what mm. kind of support and advice did they need to provide? I know you've done a lot of training mm. with the police. Yeah. What has been your experience of that, and what's your advice about what, what the police's response needs to be? Well, Carmen Ivana um, lobbied and campaigned for a HMIC inspection of all four three forces. Yeah. And it's interesting because when the Home Secretary, then Theresa May, announced a DV inspection of all four three forces, I asked her the question whether that inspection would also look at forced marriage and honour-based abuse. 
And she said no. So here's a domestic violence inspection that has not considered this form of abuse. So why are we always the poor relation? Yeah. The afterthought? Yeah. The any, any other business on the agenda item? Even if we make that. Um, so we had to lobby for a separate inspection, a specific inspection, which yeah. is the HMIC inspection. Yeah. Um, so... We've trained half the forces in Britain now. We've got yeah. 43 forces. We've trained half. And what I know about forces is, and those that we've trained in the force areas, is they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, it, it same, with, same with schools. You know, as soon as you tell them, they go, ah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So it has everything to do with training and awareness. Yep. So... Everything is there. The statutory guidelines in forced marriage on the basis of abuse have been around since 2007. Civil law, 2007. Criminal law, 2014. We've got a national helpline. We've got a government forced marriage unit. The toolbox is vast. Whether our professionals know about it or have been trained is another thing. So when you get that social worker who has got your 15-year-old kid that doesn't know about how to respond to this because her organisation has not trained her in the statutory guidelines, she's going to go and talk to mum and dad. Yeah. Okay? So when that kid is forced into marriage or, heaven forbid, murdered, is it the social worker's fault who's going to say, well, actually, I didn't know what to do in effective responses because I've just dealt with it as any other kid. So whose responsibility is it to ensure that individual is informed? And it's the same for police forces. Yeah. It requires leadership. They need training. I was one of the peer inspectors on the HMIC inspection. I'm not going to name the force. Yeah. But I spoke to PCSOs right up to the chief. Eight, about 85 officers in total I'd engaged with on my inspection. And only five knew forced marriage was a criminal offence. That's the state of affairs we're in. So it has everything to do with awareness and leadership. And quite frankly, the government have issued statutory guidelines and have not given any thought to the implementation of them in terms of monitoring them. So it's a toothless exercise, yeah. in honesty. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and my last question for you is... there. It, this podcast is for professionals. It's for practitioners, mm. frontline practitioners. What's your kind of one bit of advice for them? Um, for practitioners out there, I, I want them to know you, they're not alone with this. <laughs> You've got a massive toolbox. And Priya will talk about the helpline. The helpline not only deals with victim callers, it also deals with professional callers. 42% of the callers of the helpline are professional callers, okay. police officers, teachers. So it's a resource for them. It is a sounding board to jointly risk assess cases. Because I know that professionals out there, if it was a subject matter I had not had any experience in, mm -hmm. I would be floundering with that and need some guidance and advice. Yeah. The point I'm making is it's there. Yeah. You've got statutory guidelines, you've got civil law, criminal law, and you've got the support of a national helpline, a government unit to help those that you think are at risk abroad as well. You know, there's a lot of information out there. So use it and access it. Make it part of your business yeah. to know where it is. Get it on your website. Get copies of it. The thing about it is what's great is all this is free. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And that's great to know that it's yeah. for professionals as yeah. well and for them to use it. Yeah. Um, thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Safe Life Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, please go to our website, safelives.org.uk, where we'll be uploading new content every week, each exploring a different aspect of honour-based violence and forced marriage. If you'd like to participate in the discussion, you can join in the live Twitter Q&A conversation on the 8th of June, between 10 and 11am. Just go to hashtag your choice. And if you need to contact Carmen Nirvana, please give them a ring on 0800 5999 247. They're open seven days a week, 9am to 9pm Monday to Friday and 10am till 4pm Saturday and Sunday.